I just have such high respect for people who go out and get the story. I just hope that those of you who have the capacity that you choose this as a profession because we need you desperately. We don't need any more filmmakers. We need journalists. That was Oscar winner John Ridley, director of the 2018 DuPont-winning documentary, Let It Fall, at the first big event of our school year during orientation, when we revisited this remarkable film for a new series on race, diversity, and journalism. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School, and I'm joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa Cohen, who runs the DuPont Awards. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So tell our listeners, what is in store for today's conversation? Well, today we're bringing it back to Los Angeles, 1992, and we're seeing the connections between then and now. We'll be hearing from the filmmakers behind this documentary, Let It Fall, about a series of events known by most as the Rodney King riots, but what we'll hear in this episode from the team who put the film together should better yet be called the L.A. Uprisings. Right. This is when people took to the streets after four Los Angeles policemen were acquitted for the appalling beating of Rodney King. And this attack was actually caught on video, which is something we see today more and more, but for the time was pretty unusual. And so seeing this video really forced people and the country really to wake up to what was happening. So rewinding things just a little bit, the film was directed by John Ridley, who's actually a Hollywood filmmaker He won an Oscar for the screenplay for 12 Years a Slave, and originally he envisioned that this film, Let It Fall, would be a feature film, historical fiction, if you will. He and director Spike Lee actually spent a lot of time going down that road, but it just didn't happen. So then he had all this research outlining a whole decade of events leading up to the L.A. uprisings. Eventually, he teamed up with ABC News producers, and with the full might of the ABC News video archives, Let It Fall, the documentary was born. And the film covers so much more than just the Rodney King verdict. Obviously, since the full title of the film is Let It Fall, Los Angeles, 1982 to 1992. For example, the death of Latasha Harlins, a 15-year-old black girl who was shot by a store owner in Koreatown because she thought the girl was stealing a bottle of orange juice. It also covers the rise of the crack epidemic and so much more. So there's lots of historical context. Right. There's so much that goes into the history of these uprisings. And we really can't do it justice in this brief time that we have to intro the episode. So we definitely encourage listeners to watch the film itself. Maybe even before you listen to the podcast to avoid any spoilers. It's available to stream on Netflix and we'll have the link on our On Assignment podcast episode page. And it's also worth mentioning as you listen to this conversation and watch the film that there are so many obvious parallels to what's going on in our world today between George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Exactly. I mean, just this month with the Breonna Taylor charges, we're seeing a lot of the same grief and anger from members of the black community when it comes to the issue of police brutality. So without further ado, we'll turn it over to our moderator, co-anchor of ABC News Nightline, Juju Chang. She'll be speaking over Zoom with John Ridley, as well as the film's top producer, Jean Marie Condon, along with other producers on the team, Malia Patria and Fatima Curry. As always, this is an edited version of the conversation. Jean Marie, what was it like working with John, who was coming from this Hollywood background, for lack of a better word, and and you're, you know, in the world of documentaries. Now, John Ridley, I, of course, 
watched his work on in 12 years a slave and an American crime and you know written to him and asked him if he wanted to make a documentary about this because we had this wealth of archival material and I was interested in hearing in, in knowing how that story would be told you know through his very powerful lens and I don't know about you John but I think we expected to come at it from much different perspectives but I believe in the character-driven narrative as the really only delivery system for reaching people on important subjects. You know, I think that it was interesting that we, that we, we all approached it from, from uh, the perspective of who are these characters, what do they need to tell us, how can we draw what they want to say out of them, and then how can we do justice to what, uh, I think John had, 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 had an expression you know, their truth. We want them to tell their truth. We know that each of them will have a, a different truth. Now, one of the things I really, I think, learned from working with John is this thing that he said, as a white woman, this thing that he said about race not being binary. He was very insistent from the start on that. And uh, the idea that these truths, as you, as you bring them together, they will surprise you because the person, there, there are no good guys and bad or bad guys here. There are just people coming to the table with their truths or coming to our, in front of our cameras with the truths. They sensed we were doing that. We were interested in the details of their lives, what motivated them, et cetera. And I think that more than learning something from John's way of working as a Hollywood filmmaker, it was much more learning to see these events through his eyes, a person who, a, a black American man, a person whose kids are part Asian, but also a person who thought for a really long time about this story and, and what, the, what the truth was there. So I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but it was really more about John the philosopher rather than John the right. <laughs> director. We're getting so many questions um, that are somewhat similar. So let me see if I can try to condense it. Um, Ellie Rallo and, and others are saying, um, wondering if you find similarities, John, between screenwriting and documentary film writing. And if so, how were you able to utilize your ex expertise in screenwriting to aid your work on this project? I would say more than anything, and, and just also in conjunction with what Jean Marie said, is that Jean Marie and her team came at it with a, a journalistic rigor, which was terrific because it holds up in that regard. I came at it with a storytelling perspective of you know, let's let this unfold. How do, you know, if it's gonna be two and a half hours and 20 minutes in, the audience knows what's gonna happen, you know, they ain't gonna hang around to hear all these amazing stories. So to me, it was just, how do you, how do you unspool this in a way that feels cinematic? Malia, let me bring you in. Um, how important was it to have your perspectives? You know, your three female producers, right? Fatima, you're African-American. Malia, you are a Hawaiian, Asian Pacific Islander. Um, how important is it as, as women of color too, to, to be able to represent? Because representation in media isn't just about who you see on camera, but who you see having the power behind the scenes to select which item you're gonna focus in on to decide which characters you're gonna feature. How do your lived experiences play out, do you think, in this film? 
Great question. Um, we had a pretty diverse team from from our our PAs on up that played a really important role in in our casting and who we were able to connect with to to, to get the bookings. I think that those perspectives added tremendous value. I know that we were we constantly had conversations about diversity and different voices and harnessing like our own life experiences to bring empathy to the table in the ways that we approached people and the questions that we asked and the stories that we told. So hopefully one of the things that comes across in the film is that, you know, there was no, you know, there's no bad or good characters. It's a really complex story and the beauty of a documentary and having this much planning time is that we could really get into the nuances of that. So for instance, it's like not all cops weren't bad. We meet Lisa Phillips, for instance, who we see is in her own kind of world of oppression being a gay cop in the LAPD. And so we kind of have these little nugget stories, I think, of diversity that help people see kind of that no group is a monolith. And I think that our the diversity of our team helped to achieve um, achieve kind of that texture and the in the, the nuances of the stories. Fatima, I'd be curious back then when you were booking so many of these characters, for lack of a better word, um, the the people who were featured in your film. How did you deal with the reticence that they had? Did you have different approaches in trying to book them? And, and you know, I, I guess share some of your secrets in how you got them to overcome their reticence. Oh, revealing secrets. Um, it, it definitely, there was loads of challenges and there was definitely not a formula that I used to kind of do a blanket for everyone that I approached to book. Uh, for example, the prosecutor, uh, Prosecutor White, um, that was over a lunch uh, with another producer that was making an effort to book him. And he called me in and asked me to also meet with him and join him in lunch and just have a conversation. And that conversation I came into, I basically said, you have Black girls, I have Black girls. Uh, this story should not just stay in your head uh, or within your home, you need to share this story. So that was one approach, but uh, going into South Central, it was you know, not that at all. Uh, there was a lot of frustration that people were coming into the community, uh, taking their stories, not really wanting to, they felt give true accounts of what actually occurred. So it was really about uh, spending time with them so they could understand uh, me and my background and uh, building a level of trust with them. And that's really what the booking was about. It was just them feeling comfortable with me and who I was. Who conducted the bulk of the interviews? Basically the way the interviews went was Fatima did, would do the background interviews and really prime these people, but also prep us. Cause booking is not just about, it's not just about convincing someone to do something. It's really, it is a process of reporting. And if you're reporting and keeping your ears and eyes open to learning stuff you didn't come into the conversation with, I think the people can feel that and it's authentic. And Malia and Fatima both have a quality where they get genuinely excited by the reporting. It's not just a, you know, I gotta get this booking. <laughs> like, they really care about the story and they get excited about the new things that are being unfolded. And I think you can feel that in a conversation with them. And that's what makes a great reporter. Um, 
you know, you skip between archival footage a lot, news footage and surveillance footage, then modern day. Um, how were you able to telescope into either certain scenes that were unfolding or certain people who were having an active role that you wanted to focus in on? We wanted to find people who could say, you know, and then I did this, and then I saw that. Not people who were experts opining from afar, because we all could do that. Once we knew what bits of archive we had, and Malia did a lot of work on identifying who, who were in some of the best ABC News archive, we also looked at past news articles to get a sense of who we should be talking to to make our way into these various communities. I remember when you report a story like this, you don't necessarily go first in the first instance to the person who ends up in the documentary. It's a, it's a matter of talking to a lot of people around the subject. And then, you know, what people like Malia and Fatima did as, as reporters was sort of identifying who were the people with the best stories to tell and the most important stories to tell. So one, one uh, thing I remember is we wanted to talk to Damien who was uh, at Florence and Normandy and, and ha had that iconic shot of throwing the cinder block at Reginald Denny's head. We couldn't reach him, we couldn't reach him, we couldn't reach him. And I came across an LA Times article and I showed it to Fatima and I said, hey, there was this neighbor. In this article, there was a neighbor sitting on the porch with him right before, <laughs> right before, and then he got off the porch and ran to the crossroads. If we can find that neighbor, maybe we could make find his family. And Fatima did you know, actually through hook and by crook found that woman who ended up bringing her to his mom. And after many conversations with the mom, she got a call one night from Damien from the prison who wanted to know who this woman was who could command his mom's respect because she doesn't respect anyone or you should tell the story. He called her from the prison after she was done with talking to everyone in his circle, but go ahead. But, but my understanding, Fatima, and I, I would love to sort of underscore this idea is that you and Malia had a lot of gumshoe reporting, a lot of like hitting the pavement, knocking on doors. Expand on that, if you would. Uh, for sure. And I, I'm, I'm very clear, none of those interviews would have happened in South Central if I wasn't there. And for Damien, he had no interest in speaking to the press, like he hasn't since. Um, so it was really about uh, the love of his mother. He loved his mother and adored his mother. And I went and made collard greens with her and made cornbread and went to Compton with a, a friend of hers. And we spent the day together, you know, uh, her understanding my background and my sensibility and gaining her trust. And then she said, you know what? You come to a barbecue. We're going to have a barbecue in South Central. And you come and you meet the community. And she called everyone. And in that, at that barbecue, there was like all the players. I had no idea. It was like my first time there. And, and I started, you know, cooking on the grill with one of the guys. And he was one of the, the leading voices in that community that basically brought Damian Williams up since he was little. And at that barbecue, he asked me, you know, who are you? And I looked him in his face and I kind of told him. And, and he said, you know what, you got a lot of balls. You look at me down in my eye. And he was, you know, a gangster in the community, you know. Uh, and I said, yeah, my daddy told me, always look someone directly in the eyes, and that's what we're doing here. Um, so he said, you know what, tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, I'm going to call you. Answer your phone, make sure you answer your phone. And he called me exactly at 6 a.m. I answered the phone, and 
I hear this voice and it was just like a soothing voice and he's like, Salaamu Alaikum. And I said, who's this? And he was like, this is Damian Williams. And I was like, yes, yes, you know, inside. I was like, yes, yes, we got him. Uh, so, you know, we had sent emails and, and I mean, um, we sent mail uh, to him. Fatima, let me ask you this. Other than being elusive, why the elation? Why that much joy in booking Damian? It's really about getting uh, the firsthand, true, authentic voices. That's what I really enjoy. And a lot of those voices could care less that it's, you know, ABC or whoever. Like really, for them, it's about the connection that they're making with that person. Um, you know, I'm in the trenches with a, a lot of different families, iconic families, and they say it every single time. So when you connect with a person and you know they're giving it to you because of who you are and what you've worked, you know, worked hard to get, it, it's a it's a good feeling. So. That's where that yes came from at six in the morning. It was like all this hard work and um, there's only one fastener. So that's the cheer I have all the time when someone's like, I want to speak to you. It's like, yeah, yeah. And you're able to be a conduit for their voice to be heard uh, by such a large audience, uh, which is such a big deal. Malia, tell us about some of the door knocking. I know that you had a huge chart of names that you wanted to book. Was there anyone that you just weren't able to convince that you wish you had? Um, sure, yeah, we had maybe a spreadsheet for every single chapter and maybe, and had identified, you know, all of the key players, kind of a wish list of people. I mean, I think we, Jean and Fatima would agree, we would have loved to have had one of the Los Angeles police officers. Um, that's something that we efforted. Um, they have, they have never spoken. And we actually worked in tandem with an ABC News contributor at the time who was a former police officer, um, hoping that that angle would help, but we were unable to, we were unable to book those voices. But it probably would have changed the trajectory of the film, for sure. So speaking of the trajectory of the film, Jean, let me ask you, um, Hannah Flynn asked, how did you choose which events to cover? Because you go back 10 years, right? The choices that we made in terms of what events to cover really came from John. I mean, John had uh, read this book that unbeknownst to Malia and I had become our Bible also, which was about the catastrophe uh, that had led to this LA uprising. And it was a, like a dissection of the LAPD and race. And he arrived at the first interview because he did a bunch of the interviews uh, with this dog-eared copy of the same book, all with flags in it and underlines and going into the pages to refresh his memory. And he was meeting people that he had imagined as fictional characters for a long time. He and Spike Lee had written a screenplay and were trying to bring to Hollywood the story in the way that we ended up telling it, which is uh, from all racial groups, from all sides, from all perspectives. And so he knew a lot about the story and he right from the beginning said he wanted to go back a decade. That was from him. He wanted to start in 1982 and do the events leading up to this explosion. And Malia and I, in our first call with him, pretty much Malia, right? He identified the events that were important to him. So that was really how we, we came up with it. It really came of, of a person having come to it, having done years of research already. 
and Malia is very good at, at, at you know, reading the, the primary source material and identifying like what are the scenes we need to be filling out. And then Fatima and Malia through their gumshoe reporting were then identifying what aspects of those events should we be, should we be talking about. So let's stay on that theme. Malia, if you can answer the question about original source material, Jean Marie was pointing to the fact that you were so good at going back to newspaper clippings, going back to archival footage. How were you able to telescope into certain characters um, that you wanted to try to go out and, and hear from? Hmm. Got it, got it. Okay, so basically on archival versus reporting, it was a big divide and conquer. Um, the archival, one of the amazing things working for a news network like ABC is that we have this amazing archive from all of our bureaus. And so we actually went to KABC and asked some of our colleagues there if we could go and look through their vault. And then a lot of that was for all of us was screening that and trying to identify scenes and scenes that we had multiple angles on. And so we identified people like that based on the visuals that we had wanting to know what the real story was behind them and then we identified other people from you know primary source materials um original reporting in the los angeles times and other newspapers we also pulled police reports autopsy reports we foia'd a, a number of documents as well so there's a lot of reporting that goes in that was behind the scenes but also we used visually um, there are so many great questions that relate to the now. Talk to the crowd, John, if you will, about kinds of stories, how we tell stories about race in this age of what seems to be a, a very monumental racial reckoning that our country is going through. You know, it's really, it's difficult revisiting the subject matter because I, I truly believe that there were a, a story, if there were a documentary, if there were a news piece that was going to change the world, somebody would have done it already. But for me, you know, working on Let It Fall was about a 10 year process. So when you finish all that, you, you feel like, okay, well, you know, we've added to the positive side of the scale. We've tipped the balance. Maybe we, we haven't, you know, eradicated racism or bias or negativity, but we probably moved society along just incrementally. And then to see just a couple of years later that, you know, things have not changed demonstratively, at least going into this moment, um, it's painful. And again, it's not like, oh, we're gonna do this documentary and we're gonna be living in a utopia and we're just gonna be at a spa every day and love each other. But it's just painful to hear people talk about what they've been through and have a lived experience where I think every one of those people wish they didn't have to go through it. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying everybody behaved in a correct way, but there's, I don't think there's anybody involved in that story who didn't wish it never happened. And so for those people to preach to us, you know, like ghosts from a Dickens story and say, this is the way life should be. This is what you all need to do. Listen to us, because we've been through it, and none of us, myself included, you know, I can always do better. Everybody can do better. It's, it's very painful to see how little we've moved. There are things in this moment that are a bit more encouraging. You know, people talk about history repeating itself. I don't think history repeats. I think it rhymes. Mm. So all of these circumstances deserve their own examination. What's going on now? 
there are things that are similar to what happened in 92, but are very different that give me, you know, I guess hope. I don't know if that's Pollyannish, but you see how people are partnering. You see the different kinds of people involved in these protests. You see that they're largely um, peaceful. That does give me hope. How do you feel that the media response might have changed, if at all, to the Black Lives Matter protests today versus the LA uprisings in 1992? In other words, do you think the media has improved in the way that we cover uh, uprisings? Well, I mean, if you look at the way the, the Rodney King beating was covered, that was a watershed for Americans. They did not realize that there really were two Americas. And I, I remember, I lived through this, that, that the starkness of how you, were, you could be treated if you were a black man who was stopped for speeding versus a white person really shocked people. The man who filmed that beating was a white guy who had just gotten a new video camera and went to various local news outlets and CNN trying to get them to take it seriously until he finally found somebody who finally took the call and, and decided that it was worth showing. So it was a white guy who was so shocked at what he was seeing that, and he was like a construction worker or something. He wasn't, you know, a, like, a, like a citizen journalist or somebody, you know, like in, in this day and age, who's sort of used to taking videos and then getting it out there. This was a new thing and it was shocking to him and it was shocking to white America. It was not shocking to the African-Americans that we interviewed at the time. They said this kind of thing happened all the time. And so we covered it at the time as a sort of event that was shocking to us, a revelation that this was actually happening in America. And when the uprising happened, there was an equally shock and, and a lack of understanding, I think, even in the media as to why people were burning their city, you know, and, uh, and they understood the anger. I think they didn't understand the depth of the pain, the people covering it at the time. Um, I think that now we've been through covering Ferguson and Baltimore and so many sad events around, around this story that we're no longer covering it as if we're shocked at, at what is happening, but approach it differently in that sense. I think we now cover it as a story that we know more, a little bit more about. We immediately, we have the language to articulate what's going on. And we're helped a lot by, frankly, the mothers and the families of the victims have been an amazing force in getting out front and talking about what's been happening in their communities, they've I, I think handedly changed the way I think we, we cover things, you know? Absolutely. I, I do wonder though, when these news images are weaponized um, politically and become, you know, sort of sent through the lenses of the various political powers that be, that, you know, one person's rioter is another person's demonstrator, one person's, you know, that, that all of this has become so um, divisive. I mean, it, I think it, it's divisive, you know, on social media and on, in the airwaves. I think that you can't listen to these mothers talking about, you know, their loss 
without connecting with them on some level unless you're incredibly partisan. And that's why I say, I think more than, more than anything we've done ourselves, you know, giving those family members a platform has changed the coverage, changed the coverage. It's, it's, you know, Rodney King was a guy that was a shadowy figure in a beating video, basically. And, and Latasha Harlins was a person who you saw in a shadowy, you know, closed circuit videotape. And maybe their, their relatives said like one or two things on the, on the evening news. The persistence and the language that the Black Lives Matter movement has helped these people, you know, sort of accrue and, and the way in which it's been articulated has changed the way we articulate things. I think even Fox News is a little bit more careful about how they cover these things than, than they would have been just a few years ago. The, the lone cameraman who captured the Rodney King beating um, versus fast forward to to George Floyd. I mean, we've seen yet another body cam angle. We've seen all of the bystanders trying to intervene on the street. We saw, you know, multiple iPhone cameras at work. What do you make of that ex sort of explosion of, of lenses? I, to me, it makes me more sad because I think for a lot of folks, you can't imagine what it was like in 90, one, when Mr. King was beaten, that, you know, people were like, oh my God, you got it on tape. You know, it was like a miracle. And it truly was, because Mr. Holiday just got this camera. His wife didn't want to record. Middle of the night, just happened to be charged up and they shot this thing. So there was this feeling like, oh my God, you know, it was like capturing this unbelievable, almost mythological moment that was undeniable that led to an acquittal. Now you have all these cameras, you have people seeing it, whether it's, you know, George Floyd, whether it was the young man, uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, who was shot running, whether it's the guy who's bird watching in Central Park, and there are more cameras, people are know they're, they're being watched, nothing changes. So to me, that's what's even more painful is we all know the cameras are out there, police officers know they got body cams, they still do stuff. Give us a behind the scenes look at using the term uprising versus riots, because it's so relevant to what we're seeing unfolding on American television screens now. Well, that was one of the things very important to us. When we were putting together this story, we wanted to use the word uprising. And I think that there is, you know, uprising to me, the connotation is that, you know, the people, it, it's not this spontaneous thing. It's not just something where the Boston, um, the Red Sox win the World Series and all of a sudden people riot. That is a riot. Now people may not call it a riot, they may call it fans lose control, this or that, but when people have been marginalized and victimized and face microtransgressions over a 10 year period and then people say, oh, it was a riot. Well, no, this was not spontaneous. And even in the stories that we heard, a lot of what was happening wasn't even directly, immediately in response to what happened with Rodney King. So I do think words matter. I'm a writer, words matter. And when people say uprising, you know, even if it forces other people to go, well, wait a minute, you say uprising, but I say riot because of this, this, and this, at least you're forcing a conversation. And I think that's important. Right. Um, a question from Karen Manoraho. Um, she's wondering, what advice do you have for black journalists reporting on oppressions that are normal, quote unquote, uh, in our lives? And what do you think approaching violence on people of color say about who the news is meant for? You know, those are very good questions. I think one of the larger issues with the news media is that, no disrespect to everybody here who's a working journalist, but we see so much more 
reporting of these executions, let's call them what they are, these executions in particular, people of color, of young men of color, um, we, we have to show them. I think where journalism fails a little bit is on the other side, when they're doing stories about finance, when they're doing stories about success, when they're doing stories about middle-class things and they don't show people of color, black people, brown people, Asian people, in that context, it becomes one or the other. Hey, Wall Street is up, so let's go talk to some people on Wall Street. White guy, white guy, white guy. Hey, people are victimized, let's go over here. Oh, it's black person, black person, black person. Well then, all we're saying is, well not we, but unfortunately in the wider culture, um, white men are the uh, avatars of success and black people are victimization. If you're only talking to women when it's about me too, then you know we start siloing these things. Uh, Randy Richardson is asking about a trigger warning, that there was no trigger warning in, in Let It Fall. Obviously, this film predates a lot of the use of that, but, but are they important and, and should they be considered? Thoughts? Only a few years ago when we did this, almost nobody was doing trigger warnings. I don't, I don't I, like it. It's a word, it's a phrase that has entered the lexicon actually post the, post the making of this film. But uh, we just did a film, I oversaw a film this year called After Parkland that Juju is uh, familiar with because I did it with our, my old friends at Nightline. Um, and we did put a trigger warning up uh, at, in the beginning of After Parkland. We even sent the trailer out with a trigger warning. And when we screened it in theaters, we not only told people about how many minutes into the film they might be triggered, but we allowed them to sit at the back and said, if you want to leave around, then we'll escort you back in. So we were, it, it's a different world now. Um, and so I think we would, the answer is, I think we might very well have put trigger warnings uh, up at the beginning of this film. We did put, when it aired on ABC, and, and, and it just recently re-aired a few weeks ago, we did put up a warning, an advisory that there was, there was strong and violent content both, both but, times. But how do you feel about the idea? I mean, some people are object to sanitizing um, uh, graphic uh, information and others say that, are you, is it gratuitous? I mean, there's a, it's an interesting uh, balance. You know, that is such a good question. When we watched uh, the rebroadcast of Let It Fall, we watched it with our kids who had not seen it previously. And I gotta tell you, you know, for, for them to see this and not just say, you know, hey folks, this is gonna be graphic, so, you know, viewer discretion advised, we're not gonna show it. You're absolutely right. You know, there are people who can become desensitized to it, but I think, look, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I don't have any peer-reviewed studies, but I think anyone who has a heart is gonna be moved in the right way by what they see. I think sometimes you gotta, you gotta go there. It's not comfortable, it's not easy, but nor should it be. It certainly wasn't comfortable or easy for Mr. King. My own feeling is a lot of the public protests that we're seeing right now, you wouldn't see if you didn't play this at least a little bit. We know that because we know that there haven't been the size protests that there were after the Rodney King verdict and after the, the George Floyd killing. Uh, a lot of people have been killed brutally at the hands of, of law enforcement. And the reason you got these reactions were those that piece of tape. Do you wanna play it over and over again for your own exploitation? No. 
Um, here's a great question about uh, uh, someone's truth. Uh, from, a question from Layla Doss. How do you balance being objective or what we claim is objective and focusing on an issue which is not equal, i.e. one side is an oppressor while the other side is facing discrimination? And how do you reconcile the diversity of voices within these sides? These are like, these are serious college questions, right? That may be a Jean Marie journalist question because I'm not a journalist. Well, uh, as I'm not a member of the oppressed community, so I'm not really the person to answer this, but I, I don't know if we do a good job on that. I do think that uh, in the end, you know, documentary as opposed to straight news reporting is a way for the filmmaker to say, uh, this is what I saw. This is how I saw it. This is what was revealed to me. It, it doesn't mean that it's the same way in which that story would appear to somebody else who arrived on the scene with their camera or listened to the, the, the oral histories being unspooled for us. So the first answer to that question is, you know, it does depend on who you are telling the story. And it does depend on the sensibility that you, that you, you bring to the story. And if, if you are telling the story of a group of people who've been oppressed and you're also interviewing the oppressor, it's a lie to think that you're going to emerge on the other side thinking that, you know, both have a, <laughs> both have an equally valid point. Uh, right. You can't you do know, false. It just doesn't happen. It right. doesn't happen. There is truth. There is truth. And, and to pretend that it's always either or, I think is, is it's, that's specious. So I think we, that's what we do. We find the truth and then we try to tell it. We don't necessarily bend over backwards to be balanced when, when there's truth to be told. Um, we have a tough question from Marco Dalla Stella, um, who said, I couldn't help but notice that the perspective of the Latinx community is somehow underrepresented. Um, although the, according to the full list of victims the of, of the riots, uh, their language, 30% were Latinx, the second most affected group after the black community. Why? I think we had a difficult time getting people to sit and do interviews with us who were from that community. We worked really very hard and through some of the reporters at ABC who weren't even involved in this, but who were members of that community. Um, I think Malia can speak more directly to it, but it was very, very, very difficult uh, to get that to get that part of the story told. And, and we were we were we were vexed by it. We were. Part of me has has thought that, you know, we're going off primary documents. So there, there weren't a lot of names actually back down in some cases. So was that because those individuals at the time didn't want to talk to print reporters? Um, was that the print reporters weren't seeking out those voices? When you're working on something 25 years later, it's often hard and difficult to back down, you know, people Back on people in general, but in particular, it was something that vexed us and something that we did invest time in. Ali Pynchon wants to know, where do you believe the greatest strength of this film lies and why? You know, in all honesty, and I mean this very sincerely, the greatest strength lies in the producers who gathered these folks who are willing to give um, the narrative and their lived experience. And, and Jean Marie and her team, Malia, Fatima, they were incredibly trusting of me, probably more than I deserve, but I really wanted to tell a story that was about, and it was an oral history. It was people who had a lived experience. There are any number of ways to do documentaries, but I just did not want to do talking heads and 
intellectuals, and, and trust me, there's value in that. I, I, I want to be clear, I'm not dissing intellectuals, but people who don't have a lived experience simply talking theoretically about police, about race, about this or that. Yes, because I, I have a lived experience as a black man, but I have no experience, you know, with extreme interactions with the police. I've had bad action interactions. I've had great interactions, but have I had extreme? I've never lost a loved one to police violence. So uh, to, to me, the great strength was in the producers who were able to get people who did not talk, who had not previously shared this story to share it in this fashion for a wider audience. Um, we're, we're rolling down onto about five minutes left of time. I just want to give you guys a moment to reflect on um, what you've learned from the film, what you hope the audiences take away from this film, and why it is so relevant to what we're seeing unfold uh, in our country today. Uh, I would just say for me, I, I, if I learned anything, it was the value of listening. Um, these stories, again, just, uh, you know, I've sat with them for a long time before the documentary. We did the documentary and seeing it rebroadcast, um, it still hits hard. And more than anything, I just hope people really learn to respect the lived experience. There are people who are just going, they're going through it now. They're going through all kinds of things whether it's COVID, whether it's racial inequality, whatever it is. And the more we can remove what comes between um, the journalist and the subject, I just think the, the, the better off that we'll all be. I, I know we're in a spiral. It's, you know, when you cover the news 24 hours a day, you're going to get speculation. You're going to get, you know, well, in my opinion, I think this is going on because you got to fill that time. But I just have such high respect for people who go out and get the story. I just hope that those of you have the capacity that you choose this as a profession because we need you desperately. We don't need any more filmmakers. We need journalists. Well, I want to use my time to answer the unanswered questions that people are seconding. <laughs> so uh, one was a question about uh, how do you stop yourself from being enraged when you're trying to interview people uh, how do you how do you keep your your outrage and your emotions in check? And I think the answer is that you, you don't need to necessarily display that when you're in a conversation with someone and you're trying to get them to tell their truth. But it's okay to bring your passions and your sense of of, of rage and, and injustice to the to the projects you're doing. Uh, you, you can't become a robot, and it is the passion and the compassion with which you see the stories that will will make your work extremely, I call it stick to the ribs, that the, the next day people are still talking about it, right? Uh, is if they feel the, the, the passion that you have brought to the subject. And so I would say, don't try to check it at the door. But when you do talk to people who you don't agree with, you have to leave open the possibility that you don't know their story. You have to leave open the, the, the idea that everyone is has, has a bit of humanity that it would be important to bring to the storytelling. Because if you're just telling a story of good guys and bad guys, you haven't advanced, you haven't advanced the conversation at all. You have to have people pull themselves up short and for a moment see themselves in people that they think they would disagree with. That's, that's my first answer. The question, the second was a, was a question about how do you fill in the blanks when the historical record has left so much out? Uh, you know, what, what we really did was like, it's like you, you take a piece of thread and you pull it so it will unravel. You find like that one person who's mentioned in an article and maybe he's 
a sentence in that article and then you go try to find him or the people who knew him and work around the edges until you surface the stories of, of characters that haven't been heard from before. It's quite clear that you, as a team, captured the full spectrum of humanity. And I think that's what makes it such a remarkable storytelling. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Lisa Cohen, take it away. Thank you again to Juju Chang, Jean Marie Condon, John Ridley, Malia Patria, and Fatima Curry for joining us for our first seminar of the school year on journalism, race, and diversity. And on a personal note, Jean Marie is a longtime friend and colleague, along with moderator Juju Chang, and we are just so grateful they were able to make this happen. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Christina Shaman. We also had production assistance from our new DuPont fellows, Arcelia Martin and Rose Gilbert, our new work study, Gabrielle Allegra Hayes. And as always, our production coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.